Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Life with GDPR, a podcast where I work in conjunction with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London, and a well-known data privacy, data protection expert. However, first, as you know, the Compliance Podcast Network is always expanding, and I'm looking for new podcasts. Have you wanted to do a podcast but didn't know how? Take a listen to our sponsor this week, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. In this episode, Jonathan and I take up a topic that is not really discussed too often in terms of data privacy and data protection, but that's the topic of passwords. We talk about uh, two authentication passwords and how you must have a robust password program to pass muster with the regulator. It's a fascinating topic that's rarely discussed enough. Life with GDPR is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Jonathan Armstrong for another episode of Life with GDPR. Jonathan, first of all, thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. My pleasure, Tom. So, Jonathan, a topic that I don't think gets enough play but is a critical component of both a technical defense and an operational defense is passwords. Yeah. So I was wondering what thoughts you might have on password protection, password creation, and the entire subject of passwords that uh, literally anyone in an organization could uh, could take and le- use as a lesson learned. Yeah, so um, we've talked before about what we call GDPR fake news. So information that people have on GDPR, which they think is accurate and isn't, and passwords is increasingly one of those areas where a lot of misinformation is handed out about GDPR. So first of all, GDPR does not mandate passwords. It doesn't uh, talk in any meaningful way about passwords. But GDPR does, as we said before, require under GDPR Article 32 uh, organizations to keep data secure. And organizations have to put in place technical and organizational measures, we often call them TOMs, to ensure uh, that data is secure. And um, as I said, there's no specific mention of passwords in GDPR, but they're obviously a common uh, technical measure to try and protect data. And you'll remember that if you fail to meet your obligations to keep data secure, And by the way, a corporation will be responsible for its employees keeping data secure, so their laptops, their mobile devices, etc., etc., if they've got uh, company data on them. If you can't keep that secure, then you might have to report to a data protection uh, authority. And if you uh, fail to pass a higher threshold, if there's a higher threshold of harm, then you might have to tell the individuals as well. So where do passwords fit into this? Well, uh, a lost Um, device, for example, let's say it's a laptop, um, even if it's password protected, will most likely still have to be reported to a data protection authority. That'll be the case unless the personal data breach is unlikely to result in a risk to the rights and freedoms of natural persons. 
So we know that things like BIOS encryption, we're going to get slightly technical here. Um, uh, I'll try not to get too technical, but we know that things like BIOS encryption don't get you out of jail because it is possible with uh, most laptops, for example, because the uh, encryption might be protecting the device and the disk inside as an ancillary, if you swap the disk out and put it into a different device, then you might be able to read the data. So the onus is always going to be on the corporation, on the data controller, technically under GDPR, to prove that the technical and organizational measures it had in place were effective. And if they can't prove that, then they're likely going to have to report to the Data Protection Authority. As I said, the, the test for telling data subjects is uh, slightly different. And it might well be that a properly password-protected set of data may not have to be told, uh, the, the, the breach of that might not have to be told to data subjects if, um, if there's no likelihood of the password being read, for example. So there's a slightly different test on telling individuals. Now, we know that, um, that in some cases, uh, individuals don't have to be told if there were adequate technical and organizational measures in place, if there was no risk, etc., etc. And GDPR talks about technologies, and I quote, in particular those that render the personal data unintelligible to any person who is not authorized to access it. So at first blush, passwords might pass that threshold test. However, uh, as yet, there is no guidance from the European Data Protection Board, this uh, pan-EU uh, body that's issuing guidance on areas like password protection. And individual DPAs will take an assessment themselves. As I said, you're likely to have to report to them, and then they'll walk you through what they expect you to do with individuals. So always be prepared to justify your password policy and explain... Uh, the password protocols you use to regulate it. And here, we do have some guidance from the UK regulator, the Information Commission's Office, which might be helpful. So in November 2018, the ICO published some new guidance. You can find it on their website. And some of it is common sense, and some of it, I think, will be a big surprise to many corporations and to many compliance professionals. But this follows the latest advice from a number of people, including the UK security services. So first of all, the obvious, I think, passwords should not be stored in plain text. And you should use, uh, and again, apologies for some of the technical terms, a hashing algorithm or suitable uh, mechanism. And um, obviously, you can Google things like hashing algorithms if, if you're not familiar with those terms. Now, the hashing algorithm used should be of sufficient strength, and it should not have security weaknesses. So they're talking about not using MD5 or SHA1, because these aren't hashing algorithms that are designed to protect passwords. And hashing should take place on the server rather than the device. So there's some fairly detailed advice for what counts as a password to pass this GDPR threshold test, at least in the UK. Now, users should enter their passwords on login pages, which are protected by HTTPS. We used to tell people, remember, to look for padlocks 
to designate an HTTPS site. Obviously, that's no longer current advice because of padlocks are relatively easy to uh, mimic, but we should be telling employees, particularly if it's a corporate intranet, for example, how to recognize the correct login page and not to log into something that looks fishy and to tell people when we're changing the, the look and feel of that device. Um, now, unless absolutely necessary, the only restrictions that should be placed on passwords are, first of all, a minimum password length, and secondly, blacklisting common weak passwords. And special characters should be allowed, but not mandated. And again, I think that's the opposite of the advice that many corporations are giving their employees, mandating that they have a special character. And the logic for all of this is we need to make it easy for employees to choose a password that they feel comfortable with, that they feel that they will remember, uh, rather than get them to write it down because they don't trust their memory. And the logic, of course, for prohibiting certain names and words that might be obvious is to stop people predicting that. So if you're a rail operator, you can't you know, allow the password to be, I don't know, choo-choo. Um, I did a project for a financial services business a few years ago where a large percentage of passwords included uh, the word Beckham. So they had to ban David Beckham or variants of his, um, his name because that was too common a password. And you can download lists from time to time that tell you, you know, that regrettably password 123 is still the most <laughs> commonly used password, even in a corporate environment. So this obviously applies to you when you're permitting employees access to data. But also these security obligations extend to you if you're allowing customers to collect. Particularly if you're a B2C business, you have to educate your consumers about passwords. And um, then the fifth point of the guidance, then there are some do nots. The fifth point is that you should impose limits on login attempts. Um, these uh, limitations should be based on uh, what is called observed behavior and the circumstances of your organization. Again, I think most corporations are quite good at this bit. They do say, you know, that you're allowed five tries and then, then you have to get the password reset and go through some protocol or you're allowed 10 tries or whatever. But we need to impose a maximum number of attempts and that will depend on the circumstances of our organization. Now, the guidance then goes on to almost look at its own elements of password fake news. So there are some things that people think increase the security stance, and they don't. So the first one that the ICO says uh, is password fake news, if you like, is you should present, uh, prevent uh, users from cutting and pasting a password into the password field. Now, the current advice is that that's not good practice because it defeats some password generation tools. And it's felt that password generation tools enhance security, not decrease it. So users should be allowed to cut and paste a password into the password field. Secondly, um, you shouldn't impose unnecessary requirements on passwords, so things like special characters because that encourages people to use the same password across all their accounts 
and they create weak passwords or ones that they think they're going to remember easily, or they write them down on a post-it note and stick them to, to the device. So one in, uh, interesting anecdote I'll give you in that respect is we know the head of security of a large multinational. And um, just as an exercise in checking that they were secure, uh, just after news of the Ashley Madison leak broke, she ran a, a test over, uh, do we see any corporate email accounts in the Ashley Madison leak? So has anybody in my organization used their corporate email account to sign up for a site that uh, promotes marital infidelity. So who would do that? Well, about a dozen people across this multinational organization had done that. And disturbingly, they'd used the same password to log into the corporate environment as they used to log into the casual affair site. So obviously that's a big compromise when the leak comes of email addresses and passwords with that dump of all of that data, then obviously their corporate network is exposed as a result. So there are obvious reasons um, not to do that. And the final piece of, of password fake news, if you like, is that passwords should only be forced as a reset if there are pressing reasons to do so. So many in the information security community think that you should make users change passwords every month or every six weeks and you should ban them from using the old password and anything materially similar and they should be forced to think of something new each month and the current guidance says that that is wrong and where this is really interesting from a GDPR environment I think is that if you are a corporation that does that you may not be able to persuade a regulator that you had adequate technical and organizational measures in place. And if that's the case, then you could, with the best of intentions, by trying to be more secure, but failing to keep up with the latest thinking, you could be exposing your organization to greater risk rather than less risk, both from hackers and from regulators saying, we issued this guidance in November 2018, you knew our thinking, and we knew, and you knew, or ought to have known, that you should not have been forcing password resets. So for that reason, I haven't seen a lot of press around this at all, but I think it's a very significant development. What about two-step verifications inside of an organization? Would you advocate if you have a particularly sensitive amount of data or trove of data or um, the King's Cups, whatever it may yeah. be, uh, would that be an appropriate level uh, of risk management for highly sensitive data? I, I think that's right. I mean, I think for anything that's particularly sensitive, you're going to have to do what's called a data protection impact assessment. We've talked about that before in earlier podcasts, and people, I'm sure, can still access that. But it's a, it's a process where you go through looking at the risks involved in, in anything like that and what measures can we put in place to reduce that risk. Two-factor identification is going to be part of that mix. It's going to be something that you're going to have to consider as a mitigating factor and a way of keeping that data secure. So within the, um, I guess it's probably too early in the life of uh, GDPR to know whether uh, any of the uh, European data protection 
agencies or departments in individual countries are, are looking at this question, but could it be that at some point uh, the privacy regulators, the data protection regulators will come to a company and uh, specifically inquire into this risk manage management strategy, and if they find a uh, password program or in-practice password uh, protection plan lacking, that there could be some sort of sanction? Yeah, I think that's probably happened already, but we don't know that for certain. We do know that as well as the large volume of data breach reports that we've had across Europe, um, as at the end of January, 41,502, we know also that some uh, data protection authorities have started investigations of their own volition. So that's happened in Germany, it's happened in the Netherlands, for example. And almost certainly one of the questions they will have been asking is how do you secure um, data? What's your password policy? Let's have a look at it. So we may already have had at least some informal findings from DPAs questioning people's use of passwords. And as we know, under GDPR, that knock on the door can happen for any corporation at any time. And, and we know that it's happening in some parts of Europe already. Jonathan, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but this has been a fascinating exploration of a topic that, unfortunately, I don't think gets enough press. So uh, what is your password? <laughs> well, my password is, uh, thank you very much, uh, Tom, special character, special character. <laughs> well done. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. If you have any questions on phishing, you can email Jonathan at jonathan.armstrong at quarterycompliance.com. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jonathan and I again for another episode of Life with GDPR. Life with GDPR is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.